This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 27 I have already mentioned that the influence exerted over the people of the valley by their chiefs was mild in the extreme and as to any general rule or standard of conduct by which the commonality were governed in their intercourse with each other, so far as my observation extended, I should be almost tempted to say that none existed on the island, except indeed the mysterious taboo be considered as such. During the time I lived among the Taipees, no one was ever put upon his trial for any offense against the public. To all appearances there were no courts of law or equity, there was no municipal police for the purpose of apprehending vagrants and disorderly characters. In short, there were no legal provisions whatever for the well-being and conservation of society, the enlightened end of civilized legislation. And yet everything went on in the valley with a harmony and smoothness unparalleled, I will venture to assert, in the most select, refined, and pious associations of mortals in Christendom. How are we to explain this enigma? These islanders were heathens, savages, a cannibals, and how came they, without the aid of established law, to exhibit in so eminent a degree that social order which is the greatest blessing and highest pride of the social state? It may reasonably be inquired, how were these people governed? How were their passions controlled in their everyday transactions? It must have been by an inherent principle of honesty and charity towards each other. They seemed to be governed by that sort of tacit common-sense law, which, say what they will of the inborn lawlessness of the human race, has its precepts graven on every breast. The grand principles of virtue and honor, however they may be distorted by arbitrary codes, are the same all the world over, and where these principles are concerned, the right or wrong of any action appears the same to the uncultivated as to the enlightened mind. It is to this indwelling, this universally diffused perception of what is just and noble, that the integrity of the Marquesans and their intercourse with each other is to be attributed. In the darkest nights they slept securely, with all their worldly wealth around them, in houses the doors of which were never fastened. The disquieting ideas of theft or assassination never disturbed them, each islander reposed beneath his own palmetto thatching, or sat under his own breadfruit tree, with none to molest or alarm him. There was not a padlock in the valley, nor anything that answered the purpose of one. Still, there was no community of goods. This long spear, so elegantly carved and highly polished, belongs to Wormunu. It is far handsomer than the one which old Marheyo so greatly prizes. It is the most valuable article belonging to its owner. And yet I have seen it leaning against a coconut tree in the grove, and there it was found when sought for. Here is a sperm whale tooth, graven all over with cunning devices. It is the property of Carluna. It is the most precious of the damsel's ornaments. In her estimation, its price is far above rubies, and yet there hangs the dental jewel by its cord of braided bark in the girl's house, which is far back in the valley. The door is left open and all the inmates have gone off to bathe in the stream. Footnote. 
The strict honesty with which the inhabitants of nearly all the Polynesian islands manifest towards each other is in striking contrast with the thieving propensities some of them evince in their intercourse with foreigners. It would almost seem that according to their peculiar code of morals, the pilfering of a hatchet or a wrought nail from a European is looked upon as a praiseworthy action. Or rather, it may be presumed, that bearing in mind the wholesale forays made upon them by their nautical visitors, they consider the property of the latter as a fair object of reprisal. This consideration, while it serves to reconcile an apparent contradiction in the moral character of the islanders, should in some measure alter that low opinion of it which the reader of South Sea Voyages is too apt to form. End of footnote. So much for the respect in which personal property is held in Taipei. How secure an investment of real property may be, I cannot take upon me to say. Whether the land of the valley was the joint property of its inhabitants, or whether it was parceled out among a certain number of landed proprietors who allowed everybody to squat and poach as much as he or she pleased, I never could ascertain. At any rate, musty parchments and title deeds there were none on the island and I am half inclined to believe that its inhabitants hold their broad valleys in fee simple from nature herself, to have and to hold, so long as grass grows and water runs, or until their French visitors, by a summary mode of conveyancing, shall appropriate them to their own benefit and behoof. Yesterday I saw Cory Cory hie him away, armed with a long pole, with which, standing on the ground, he knocked down the fruit from the topmost boughs of the trees and brought them home in his basket of coconut leaves. Today I see an islander, whom I know to reside in a distant part of the valley, doing the selfsame thing. On the sloping bank of the stream are a number of banana trees. I have often seen a score or two of young people making a merry foray on the great golden clusters and bearing them off, one after another, to different parts of the vale, shouting and tramping as they went. No churlish old curmudgeon could have been the owner of that grove of breadfruit trees, or of these gloriously yellow bunches of bananas. From what I have said, it will be perceived that there is a vast difference between personal property and real estate in the Valley of Taipei. Some individuals, of course, are more wealthy than others. For example, the ridgepole of Marheo's house bends under the weight of many a huge package of tapa, his long couch is laid with mats placed one upon the other seven deep. Outside, Tinor has ranged along in her bamboo cupboard, or whatever the place may be called, a goodly array of calabashes and wooden trenchers. Now the house just beyond the grove, next to Marheo's, occupied by Ruaruga, is not quite so well furnished. There are only three moderate-sized packages swinging overhead. There are only two layers of mats beneath and the calabashes and trenchers are not so numerous, nor so tastefully stained and carved. But then Ruaruga has a house, not so pretty a one to be sure, but just as commodious as Marheo's, and I suppose if he wished to vie with his neighbor's establishment, he could do so with very little trouble. These, in short, constituted the chief differences perceivable in the relative wealth of the people in Taipei. Civilization does not engross all the virtues of humanity. She has not even her full share of them. They flourish in greater abundance and attain greater strength among many barbarous people. The hospitality of the wild Arab, 
the courage of the North American Indian, and the faithful friendships of some of the Polynesian nations, far surpass anything of a similar kind among the polished communities of Europe. If truth and justice, and the better principles of our nature, cannot exist unless enforced by the statute book, how are we to account for the social condition of the Taipees? So pure and upright were they in all the relations of life, that entering their valley, as I did, under the most erroneous impressions of their character, I was soon led to exclaim in amazement, Are these the ferocious savages, the bloodthirsty cannibals of whom I have heard such frightful tales? They deal more kindly with each other, and are more humane, than many who study essays on virtue and benevolence, and who repeat every night that beautiful prayer breathed first by the lips of the divine and gentle Jesus. I will frankly declare that after passing a few weeks in this valley of the Marquesas, I formed a higher estimate of human nature than I had ever before entertained. But alas, since then I have been one of the crew of a man-of-war, and the pent-up wickedness of five hundred men has nearly overturned all my previous theories. There was one admirable trait in the general character of the Taipees which more than anything else secured my admiration. It was the unanimity of feeling they displayed on every occasion. With them there hardly appeared to be any difference of opinion upon any subject whatever. They all thought and acted alike. I do not conceive that they could support a debating society for a single night. There would be nothing to dispute about, and were they to call a convention to take into consideration the state of the tribe, its session would be a remarkably short one. They showed this spirit of unanimity in every action of life. Everything was done in concert and good fellowship. I will give an instance of this fraternal feeling. One day, in returning with Cory Cory from my accustomed visit to the tea, we passed by a little opening in the grove, on one side of which, my attendant informed me, was that afternoon to be built a dwelling of bamboo. At least a hundred of the natives were bringing materials to the ground, some carrying in their hands one or two of the canes which were to form the sides, others slender rods of the hibiscus, strung with palmetto leaves, for the roof. Everyone contributed something to the work, and by the united but easy and even indolent labors of all, the entire work was completed before sunset. The islanders, while employed in erecting this tenement, reminded me of a colony of beavers at work. To be sure, they were hardly as silent and demure as those wonderful creatures, nor were they by any means as diligent. To tell the truth, they were somewhat inclined to be lazy, but a perfect tumult of hilarity prevailed, and they worked together so unitedly, and seemed actuated by such an instinct of friendliness, that it was truly beautiful to behold. Not a single female took part in this employment, and if the degree of consideration in which the ever-adorable sex is held by the men be, as the philosophers affirm, a just criterion of the degree of refinement among a people, then I may truly pronounce the Taipees to be as polished a community as ever the sun shone upon. The religious restrictions of the taboo alone excepted, the women of the valley were allowed every possible indulgence. Nowhere are the ladies more assiduously courted, nowhere are they better appreciated as the contributors to our highest enjoyments, and nowhere are they more sensible of their power. 
far different from their condition among many rude nations, where the women are made to perform all the work, while their ungallant lords and masters lie buried in sloth, the gentle sex in the valley of Typee were exempt from toil, if toil it might be called, that, even in that tropical climate, never distilled one drop of perspiration. Their light household occupations, together with the manufacture of tapa, the plaiting of mats, and the polishing of drinking vessels, were the only employments pertaining to the women, and even these resembled those pleasant avocations which fill up the elegant morning leisure of our fashionable ladies at home. But in these occupations, slight and agreeable though they were, the giddy young girls very seldom engaged. Indeed, these willful, care-killing damsels were averse to all useful employment. Like so many spoiled beauties, they ranged through the groves, bathed in the stream, danced, flirted, played all manner of mischievous pranks, and passed their days in one merry round of thoughtless happiness. During my whole stay on the island I never witnessed a single quarrel, nor anything that in the slightest degree approached even to a dispute. The natives appeared to form one household, whose members were bound together by the ties of strong affection. The love of kindred I did not so much perceive, for it seemed blended in the general love, and where all were treated as brothers and sisters, it was hard to tell who were actually related to each other by blood. Let it not be supposed that I have overdrawn this picture. I have not done so. Nor let it be urged that the hostility of this tribe to foreigners, and the hereditary feuds they carry on against their fellow islanders beyond the mountains, are facts which contradict me. Not so. These apparent discrepancies are easily reconciled. By many a legendary tale of violence and wrong, as well as by events which have passed before their eyes, these people have been taught to look upon white men with abhorrence. The cruel invasion of their country by Porter has alone furnished them with ample provocation, and I can sympathize in the spirit which prompts the Taipei warrior to guard all the passes to his valley with the point of his leveled spear, and standing upon the beach, with his back turned upon his green home, to hold at bay the intruding European. As to the origin of the enmity of this particular clan towards the neighboring tribes, I cannot so confidently speak. I will not say that their foes are the aggressors, nor will I endeavor to palliate their conduct. But surely, if our evil passions must find vent, it is far better to expend them on strangers and aliens than in the bosom of the community in which we dwell. In many polished countries, civil contentions, as well as domestic enmities, are prevalent, at the same time that the most atrocious foreign wars are waged. How much less guilty, then, are our islanders, who of these three sins are only chargeable with one, and that the least criminal? The reader will ere long have reason to suspect that the Taipees are not free from the guilt of cannibalism and he will then perhaps charge me with admiring a people against whom so odious a crime is chargeable. But this only enormity in their character is not half so horrible as it is usually described. According to the popular fictions, the crews of vessels, shipwrecked on some barbarous coast, are eaten alive like so many dainty joints by the uncivil inhabitants, and unfortunate voyagers are lured into smiling and treacherous bays, knocked in the head with outlandish war-clubs, and served up without any preliminary dressing. In truth, so horrific and improbable are these accounts, 
that many sensible and well-informed people will not believe that any cannibals exist, and place every book of voyages which purports to give any account of them on the same shelf with Bluebeard and Jack the Giant Killer, while others, implicitly crediting the most extravagant fictions, firmly believe that there are people in the world with tastes so depraved that they would infinitely prefer a single mouthful of material humanity to a good dinner of roast beef and plum pudding. But here, Truth, who loves to be centrally located, is again found between the two extremes. For cannibalism to a certain moderate extent is practiced among several of the primitive tribes in the Pacific, but it is upon the bodies of slain enemies alone, and horrible and fearful as the custom is, immeasurably as it is to be abhorred and condemned, still I assert that those who indulge in it are in other respects humane and virtuous.'